Well, two months ago, Cliff Emhoff, who you all know and love, he's over here, he and I were working on our house one afternoon. We bought an old house, my wife and I, in Trenton, 142 years old, actually. So it still needs a lot of work. But two months ago, Hudson, my three-year-old son. How many of you have experienced having a three-year-old son before? Yes. Energetic full of life, and full of crazy mischief. Well, my three-year-old son, he calls me Papa. Okay, So Hudson and Papa were supposed to be working in the dining room, working on some trim. So he was just kind of playing around with the wood and stuff like that And while I worked. And he was sticking close by to me. And Stephanie was in another room. Cliff was in another room and we're working away. And Papa stopped watching Hudson for about 30 seconds. It just so happened it was a nice, cool, sunny day, so we had the windows open. We also had the storm door unlocked. And so, meanwhile, while I'm working, Hudson darts out the front door. Nobody sees him. Suddenly I just notice it's kind of quiet, like it's Hudsonless. The house is Hudsonless. And so, Stephanie and I look at each other. Where's Hudson? We darted out the front door, and he was nowhere to be found. And across the street, we bought this old house, and it's on Riverside Drive. If you're acquainted with Trenton, you might know where that is. But across the street is the river. And so this panic is running through our minds. Frantic panic. Where's Hudson? So I run across the street. Cliff comes down the stairs. He's going, what's going on? You know, I think we almost gave him a nervous breakdown. He went off walking down the street. Stephanie walked this way. The neighbor came out and started searching around the whole neighborhood for Hudson. And so I walked across the street worried he might have fallen in the river or something. These thoughts going through my mind. What if he got hit by a car? What if he fell in the river? He doesn't know how to swim. What if somebody decided to kidnap him? Not quite likely in Trenton, but you never know. Uh, just panic running through my mind. A sense of urgency, a consuming sense of urgency that Hudson was gone. I've got to find him. got to find him now. My son was lost, and he's only three years old, and he's just very... Explore it, you know, curiosity is the name of the game for him. So about 20 minutes later, we were getting ready to call the police. 20 minutes go by, and we're searching and searching and searching. No Hudson. I thought, I wonder if he's maybe just around in our neighbor's backyard. So I walked over to our neighbor's backyard, noticed that the garage door was open. There's Hudson. He got tools off the walls, managed to turn on the radio, and he's like, Hi, Papa. How you doing? I'm like, oh, Hudson, please. Uh, needless to say, he, he got in trouble that day, but he also got a lot of hugs because we were really happy that we found Hudson. Three-year-old kid running around the city. Anything could have happened. Jesus was on a mission to search out the lost, to search out people that were spiritually lost, first for the house of Israel, but also for anyone who is lost and apart from Jesus Christ, apart from a relationship with the God of the universe, the God of all love, the God who wants a relationship with the people of the world, the people that he has made. And Jesus, when he walked the roads of Israel, around Galilee and Jerusalem, he was on this mission to search out the lost, and he had this consuming sense of urgency, more so than I had when I was searching for Hudson. And the thought came to mind that I, as I was reading over this passage about Jesus seeking the lost, 
I thought, if I call myself a Christian, if I call myself a follower of Jesus, why don't I have that sense of urgency? Why don't I have that consuming passion to search out the lost, that they, are, they need to be brought to the message of the cross? And, and I oftentimes am just filled with apathy. Or maybe like, like me, you are really good at rationalizing your way out of talking to people at the gas station, at the grocery store, in the parks, uh, maybe in your neighborhood, and you start to think, well, you know, uh, my kids are calling, or maybe it's just not a good day for them, and I don't want to intrude. Maybe they won't like what I have to say. Maybe they'll think I'm weird. Maybe they'll think I'm just kind of one of these religious nuts, and maybe it'll hurt my status, or maybe they won't ever say hello to me in the neighborhood again if I talk to them about Jesus because I don't know what they believe and they find out what I believe, maybe they won't like it. Have you ever found yourself in that place where you just quickly kind of go through this little thing, why, oh, I don't need to tell this person about Jesus. I found myself there. And if we, fo- if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and he had this sense of urgency and still does for the lost, what's our issue What's the block? What's the block between following in the mission of Jesus Christ and actually living it out in our lives every day? If Jesus had a consuming sense of urgency to seek and to save the lost, and we know Jesus alone saves, and eternity is hanging in the balance for every man, woman, and child that we pass every day, why don't we have this sense of urgency of Jesus Christ for the lost that surround us in this community every single day. Why don't I? Why don't you? I know some of you try, and I try, but oftentimes I fail, and I wonder, what is the block? God is on a search and rescue mission, and he's called us to be a part of it. So what's the block? The disciples had this problem. They were following Jesus, and they came up against this block. They saw Jesus ministering to the sick, the needy. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and oftentimes they had sort of a different plan. And the passage we're going to look at this morning in Matthew 18, and also in the parallel passage in Luke 15, addresses the block in my life and, and maybe in your life and in the disciples' lives. And also it, it was connected with the way the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day thought about people, about the lost. So if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter, fifth, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18, open up your Bible there to Matthew chapter 18 verse 10. Starting in verse 10, Matthew chapter 18. I want to walk, and I want you to have to walk with me through two scenes. Two different scenes that Jesus used to frame this parable of the 99 sheep who stayed at home and the one that had gone astray, the one that was lost. One scene in Matthew, and the other scene in Luke. And one scene brings the message to the disciples who have the similar issue that we have. We should be filled with a consuming sense of urgency to be on God's search and rescue mission, knowing that we need to bring the lost to the message of the cross. But 
Like for them and for us, we get distracted. We find ourselves with this block in our lives. And then in Luke 15, it's, the, it's these Pharisees and the religious so-called righteous people. They think they're righteous. And Jesus gives them a message. And it deals with the same root problem, which is really interesting. Because I think that the thing that holds us back, this block, is the same. And if we can identify that, see what Jesus is teaching us in, in Matthew 18 and in Luke 15, I think it would radically change our lives. I believe it would radically change this church, the church, if we got on board with God's search and rescue mission. So the first scene. The disciples are busy bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to be sitting at God's right hand? Who's going to be on the top notch of the hierarchical system and God's rule when the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant occurs, when, when God reigns again on the throne of David on earth, who's going to be chief? They're worried about position. They're worried about status. In fact, that's what their thoughts are consumed about. So they're, I think they're probably bickering, arguing, and I can see Peter over here. Well, I walked on water. You guys wouldn't even get out of the boat, for crying out loud. And I went out of the boat, and Jesus took my hand. I walked on water with him. So where does that put me, okay? And the other disciples like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so they end up going to Jesus, and they ask this question in the beginning of Matthew 18. And they say, Jesus, who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 1 of chapter 18. Who will be, who will be top-notch? And what does Jesus do? He brings a little child and he stands the child in front of them. And this is what he says to them. Verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Yow! It'd be better that he'd be dead. It'd be better that if you cause a little child, one young in the faith, to stumble, that we strap a big piece of rock around your neck and throw you in the open sea. That's pretty shocking. In Mark 9, there's another little picture in the same scene. John pipes up and he says, after Jesus brings the child in front of them, and, and he's telling them, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you need to humble yourself like a child. And John says, I think he totally missed the point here. He said, Teacher, uh, Jesus, while, we were, while you were out in the mountain transfiguration, we were out today, and there was this man casting out demons in your name. But he wasn't following us, so we told him to stop it. We told him to stop casting out demons. He was doing it in your name, but he wasn't following us. So we told him to stop it, and Jesus says, Wait, 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 wait a minute, guys. If he was following, if he was having faith in my name, in Jesus Christ, 
in, 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 in faith in me, Jesus says to his disciples, this is Mark 9, maybe I should turn there if, so you guys can get acquainted with this. Mark 9, uh, Mark chapter 9, if you turn over there really quickly, Mark chapter 9, looking in verse 30, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And they didn't understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now look down in verse 34, or 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive and whoever receives me does not receive excuse me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me, meaning Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Now thirty eight. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who per- will perform a miracle in my name and will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And then he goes into this little, this passage about strapping a millstone around a person's neck and throwing him to the open sea if you cause a little one to stumble. They're saying, he's, Jesus is saying, this, this man who is casting on demons in the name of Jesus Christ is a little one. He's believing in faith in the Messiah and the plan of God, and you just told him to stop it. What is Jesus saying to the disciples? If you keep this up, you better be dead than alive. That's kind of the implication. This is a really, really serious matter for someone who is following Christ, and just because he doesn't fit in the disciples' little group, little clique, the twelve, he wasn't following them, he was supposed to just stop it. So our block is pride. Our block is pride, just like the disciples. Spiritual pride sidelines us from God's mission. It'll block us every time. If you could think back to when you first came to Jesus Christ, maybe some of you, this was recent. Maybe some of you it was 15 years ago. Maybe for some of you it was 20 years ago. But do you remember how passionate you were to talk to people about Jesus? And then did you ever... A year or so in, have maybe a seasoned Christian come up alongside you and say, well, you know, you'll learn. Things get difficult. It's the testing over time that really counts. I think that's kind of what's going on. And, and, and these seasoned Christians, nothing wrong with that, right? And testing does come. But the disciples are thinking, we're following Jesus We've got this position, and they're busy bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven and telling people who are having faith in Christ to stop working in the name of Christ because they're not in the group, because they're not in the clique. Certainly there was a special special group. God, Jesus chose 12. But Jesus' mission was to reach out to everyone. He had this sense of urgency on the mission. So that's the first scene. 
And to the disciples, he tells the story of the 99 sheep and the one that had gone astray. And he tells them, so what do you think? He starts off the parable with a question. So what do you think? He's talking to the 12. What do you think about this? That spiritual pride sidelines us from God's mission. You need to think about what God's mission really is. And it doesn't mean getting caught up in a group, in a special little a special little hierarchical argument about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Supposed, actually, you're supposed to be like a little child, like about this child pointing to this little one, coming in just simple faith. So Jesus tells this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, this is Matthew 18, verse 12. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That's God's mission. That's this consuming sense of urgency that God has for the one that had gone astray. The one that needs to be found. Just like I had this almost frenetic sense of chasing down, finding Hudson. That's how God is about the lost. And that's how God's people are supposed to be about the lost. You see, God is a seeking and saving God who sent His Son into the world to seek and to save the lost. And He sent His people into the world to seek out the lost and bring them to the message of the cross. That's our mission, church. And somehow, I often find myself getting into this rationalization pattern, a cycle of not really reaching out to the people that are lost, that need Jesus Christ. God wants a relationship with them. So there's the first scene here, Matthew 18, here's the disciples. They've got a pride problem that's sidelining them from God's mission because they're more concerned about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they've lost sight that they're supposed to be pursuing God's mission to seek the lost. That's what God rejoices over. That's what makes God happy. To hug and bring into the fold the ones that are His, the ones that are lost. Bring them home. But there's this second scene in Luke, Luke chapter 15. You can turn over there to Luke chapter 15. Here's the, here's the Pharisees. Here's the, here's the righteous people. The people have the right kind of clothing, who eat the right food, who go to the temple at the appropriate times, who remain clean, ceremonially clean. They don't, they don't do bad things, quote-unquote. But their lives are, are reeking with pride. And look at Luke 15. This was really, really convicting to me. Now, all the tax collectors... I don't like taxes. Maybe we have some IRS agents in here. That's okay. I, I don't really like paying taxes, but we think taxes are bad today. Think again. In biblical times, the Romans taxed people with an iron fist. They taxed them, and, and there was no real constraint on individual, individual tax collectors. You see this in the story of Zacchaeus. And, and Zacchaeus, he kind of just stole from whoever he wanted to steal from. Tax collectors could be unjust. There was little check and balance. As long as they got the, um, the, enough money to the Roman official overseeing them, they could take whatever was in between. 
So the religious Jewish people hated tax collectors. And then it says, verse 1 of chapter 15, now all the tax collectors and the sinners. I find it interesting that there's a definite article in front of sinners. The sinners. It's a category, like a label. These people are the kind of people I think the righteous people didn't want to be around. The prostitutes. The half-breeds. The smelly herdsmen. The people who were ceremonially unclean, who couldn't go into the temple. The people who, who didn't know the Torah. Maybe didn't even care to know the Torah. The abused. The leper. The sick. The sinners. The sinners were coming, what? They were coming near him to listen to him. It's as, almost as if they really wanted to be around Jesus. The sinners, the Pharisees, wanted to be, excuse me, not the Pharisees, the sinners and the tax collectors wanted to be near Jesus to listen to him. Why? Because I think he welcomed them. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes deduced from the situation. Look in verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes, the head honchos of the religious society, the legalists, began to grumble saying, this man, not a teacher, not, not a prophet, this man, This guy over here, he receives sinners. You could translate that word receives. He welcomes sinners. And he even eats with them. Not good. So Jesus overhears this, or maybe he just knew their thoughts. He could do that too. Verse 3, So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, the same parable, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Implying everybody would do that, right? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He brings the lost sheep into his arms, puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, quote, righteous persons, Pharisees who need no repentance. They do, but they think they don't because they've got everything on the outside okay, they think. Yet they've got the same problem, this self-righteous exclusivism that sidelines them from God's mission. They don't even see why Christ was there preaching the kingdom of God. He does, they don't even see why the sinners, why the tax collectors want to be near Jesus and listen to him. They, don't, they totally miss the point. To us, these, these sinners, these tax collectors, this would be like, to me, if I, were, if I were driving around Taylor, Southgate, Lincoln Park, Allen Park, urban Detroit, these are the kind of people I think, these are the kind of people I think that Jesus would hang around with. These are the guys that, that put out cigarette butts in their bare hands because they've got so many calluses on their palms. Maybe they have tattoos running up and down their arms. They've got piercings, maybe a little alcohol on their breath. Women who maybe are, are unwed and pregnant. Children who, who maybe haven't had a bath in a week or two. And they just need someone to love them. 
sinners, people who have serious problems, who need Jesus Christ. They need to be loved and brought to the message of the cross. And I rationalize my way out of talking with them. Last week we had our uh, Awake Teen Conference. And it was great. God was moving. And Monday, Monday and Tuesday afternoons we took a bunch of teens up there, down here, out canvassing, passing out flyers for Awake to let people know what was going on. And we were out on Eureka Beach Daily area and we were passing out flyers and it was going good. We were on our way back here to the church and we saw this one young guy sitting down in the grass next to a tree. His bicycle was leaned up against the tree. And we thought, oh, well, he, we could give him a flyer. So I turned the van around in a 7-Eleven parking lot or something like that, pulled up along the side of the, the, to the street that was uh, uh, per- perpendicular to where he was uh, sitting down in the grass. And then I, I looked over, and all the teens looked over at him, all 15 in the van. <laughs> and he gave us this glare that was kind of scary. And, and uh, some of the teens in the van go, I'm not getting out of the van, no way. <laughs> and we thought about it, and then one of the girls in the back seat said, no, he needs a flyer anyways. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go out there and talk to this guy who just gave us a scary glare. <laughs> and I jumped out of the van, ran out, and, and I'm not the hero of this story, okay? Not at all, because I, I was scared. I'm like, okay, I'll give him a little flyer. So I run out. Here you go. And he, he looks up at me, and he gives me this smile. I'm like, wow, he smiled at me. And he said, thanks for the flyer. And then he told me that, and, that he was going to maybe go to a Bible study at a church that night. Who would have thought? We thought, you know, this, this guy, he kind of looked like he maybe didn't have a place to sleep that night. He didn't fit into our, our, the way we look, the way we talk. He took the flyer, he smiled. Nothing bad happened. In fact, I got to share the love of Jesus with somebody who maybe, maybe knows Christ, maybe doesn't. There are people like that all around us. And what would sideline us from the mission is a self-righteous exclusivism that would say, you know what, if the people don't fit into what we want them to look like and, and talk like and smell like and all that kind of stuff, then I'm just going to stay with my safe group. Just stay in the van. Just stay on our property here, as nice as it is, and never go out with a sense of urgency, with a consuming sense of urgency that lives are hanging in the balance, the reality of eternity. So pursue the lost and bring them to the message of the cross. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he uses this picture of a child, a little child, to bring the message home. And a sheep, a little innocent lamb, susceptible to danger. Going out of the wilderness to find, to find a little lonely lamb can be dangerous. There are wolves, criminals out there in biblical times. And the same could be the case for us. And we are supposed to be filled with, the, with this sense of pursuing the lost anyways and bring them to the message of Jesus Christ. So we have this opportunity at Evangel. This evangel, 
has a lot of little children. I want to give you just like concrete applications, how you can, how you can go on the mission, go on the search and rescue mission, bringing the lost to the message of the cross. Pursue the little by volunteering to work with evangel children. Mike, I didn't ask to put your email up there. If you're... Mike Veenstra is our superintendent for our Sunday school department, and he handles the children's church hour as well. And my email is at the top there as well, mbresnotyahoo.com and mdveenstra at gmail.com. If you're interested in working with little children, some of the children coming in here every Sunday do not know Christ, and they need someone to be like Jesus, to love them, to give them a hug, to tell them the message of the cross with a consuming sense of urgency that their lives are really hanging in the balance and this really matters. So if you're interested in that, if you feel like you have a calling for that, we'd love to hear from you. But here's where it gets down to the gritty for all of us. Maybe some of you aren't called to work with children, and that's okay. Not all of us can work with three-year-olds like Hudson who's ready to dart out the door. But pursuing the lost is living like Jesus. This is a picture from Detroit. There are children like that around who need someone to go up to them and talk to them. Maybe you've got an idea outside of the box, outside of the box of what we do as programming here at Evangel that could reach children like this on the streets of Detroit in a way that we're not doing right now. Here are some, some Muslim girls and and. This is a picture of our culture. This was actually taken when I was down in Texas. Uh, there are a lot of Islamic students around the Dallas area, believe it or not, and that's Southern Methodist University where they're students, Methodist University. It's kind of ironic. Uh, they need Jesus Christ. We live next door to the largest Islamic population in the United States of America, Dearborn. It's our back door. How are we going to reach them? Do we have a consuming sense of urgency to get on the ground and seek out the lost. How are we going to do that? We're looking to you for ideas. We all have to be filled with this sense of urgency. Or maybe downtown Detroit, here's a homeless guy on the streets during a UAW parade. Maybe the people in the parade and the homeless guy need us to go to them, to talk with them. In a way that's like Jesus, that welcomes them in divine love spirit-driven love, tells them of their innate need for a Savior, brings them to the message of the cross. I want to uh, read you a little poem from a song that really moves me every time I hear it. Every time I hear this song. It's from the group Casting Crowns. You prob- most of you probably heard this song, but I want you to close your eyes and just listen to the words. Bow your heads, because we want to meet with God right now about Him filling us with that consuming sense of urgency to pursue the lost and to bring them to the message of the cross. That's why we're here, church. If we want to call ourselves Christians, that entails we follow in the path of the one who we call Christ. And if He welcomes sinners, if He receives sinners, and He went out to the lost, that's what we're supposed to be like, too. We use this word sanctification, the process of growing in Christ-likeness. That means that we actually start to look like the Jesus we find in the Bible. The guy who goes out, who rejoices over just one lost sheep. The guy who talks to people who are hurting and needy and abused. 
Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around, but never looking up. I am so double-minded. A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Oh Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's writing in the sand, may the righteous turn away and the stones fall from their hands. Help us to remember we are the least of these. Let the memory of your mercy bring your people to their knees. Nobody knows what we're for, only uh, what we're against when we judge the wounded. What if we put down our signs, crossed over the lines, and loved like you did? Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. You love every lost cause. You reach for the outcast, for the leper and the lame. They're the reason that you came. Lord, I was that lost cause. I was that outcast. But you died for sinners just like me. A grateful leper at your feet. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. That is our cry, O oh God, this morning. As your people, we recognize that we can get caught up in power struggles, in self-righteous exclusivism, in pride, spiritual pride, we can rationalize our way out of having a sense of urgency about the lost who are hanging in the balance. And we recognize that you, O oh God, have called us to be on your mission, the same mission that you sent your son to do, to seek out the lost, and that you've called us to bring the lost to your message to the cross through your spirit power. This morning we pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. We pray that we would not forget the, the joy that you have over even just one lost sheep that you've called and that you want back in the fold, that you want in the fold, the sinners, the tax collectors, perhaps We've forgotten too much, Lord. And we pray that you would work in us in a way like never before to fill us with a consuming sense of urgency to pursue the lost for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.